we have a very vivid story in the book of Acts today. And as I mentioned last week, the book of Acts is filled with vivid stories. And if you can imagine the scene where Paul and, and Silas are walking along and they have this tag along that won't be quiet and keeps calling out about who these guys are. Now we know the feeling of people not being quiet and the annoyance of that. And Paul just finally has it. And commands this spirit to come out of her. I'm interested, though, that there's not anything else much said about her, this slave girl that brought her owners a lot of money by her ability to see. And I wonder what happened to her after this. You know, kids, generally speaking, don't have much rights at all. Even in our own country, there weren't provisions for the safety of children until early into the 20th century when rules started to be established about how kids needed to be treated and not treated. And of course that's trickled out over the last 100 years into some practices of humanity and humane rights and how we should treat one another. But children are a vulnerable population. Young people just by the nature of their reliance on the adult population fall prey to victimhood and abuse and abuse, and we all know that. And so here in this story, we have such a person. Interestingly enough, though, she is pivotal to advancing the story of Jesus' work in the world and the Spirit's work in the world. If we hadn't had her here yelling out and crying out about who these two guys were, then we wouldn't have gotten in even further into the story where they're brought before the magistrates and have charges trumped up against them and then are imprisoned. All of that wouldn't have happened if it weren't for her. There are other children in the scriptures as well that advance God's story and very little attention is often paid to them. I know a professor at my um, seminary has done a lot of work on this and there are others as well. I think it's called um, childrenist um, theology, looking at scripture from the perspective of the children within scripture. Let me tell you a few examples and you'll see what I mean. Boy David, when he came to fight Goliath, if you might recall, he came before the king, Saul, and said, I'm willing to go out into this battle and take on their largest, baddest guy. And Saul, feeling some sense of um, responsibility perhaps, offers to David his armor. And if you recall in that story, David puts it on and it doesn't fit. Think of what a 12-year-old size might be. And a man's armor on top of him, the joints would be off, it would be too heavy. And so he discards the armor and goes out with what he knows, his slingshot. And it's with that that he defeats Goliath. Fast forward a lifetime and upon King David's death, his son comes to rule Israel, Solomon. And we hear in the scriptures that he's a boy. He's 12. Well, all of us know the stories of young kings and how um, difficult it can be (laughs) as they have advisors and people who negotiate for them and give them counsel. And so what does young Solomon pray for as he takes his throne? He prays for wisdom, and he's granted it. We read in scripture that he is known to be the wisest person in the land, and he even aptly identifies the actual birth mother of a baby for whom two women are fighting. He does it by how they react to his decision. 
Those are two children in scripture, even another one in the Old, Old Testament, Samuel, who was given to the priest, Eli, upon his birth, well, when he was old enough and weaned, probably about five years old. And in that story, Samuel hears the voice of God, yet he gets up to go to talk to Eli because he thinks Eli is calling him. And so you might remember this. He gets up three times, each time going to Eli, and Eli says, I didn't call you, son. Go back down. Go lay back down. And it's only the third time that Eli says, oh, oh, this is God. The next time he says it, say, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. And what does God say to the boy Samuel that night? He pronounces judgment on Eli, the priest, and on his sons who have fouled the priesthood and and says, you know, it's going to go bad for you. And the boy Samuel, the next morning when Eli says, what did God say to you? He says, uh, and Eli says, you better tell me because God is the king. And with your silence, it won't protect any of us. Those are three stories in the Old Testament of children who help advance the the salvation narrative. And if you look even then to the New Testament, when the feeding of the 5,000, who is it that brings the five fish and two loaves? It's a boy. And that food is multiplied and feeds the multitude. That miracle is the only miracle in all four Gospels. So you see, it's important that we notice these young people in Scripture and how it is that they help reveal God's work in the world, God's saving work in the world. This brings me to the Gospel of John. Now, I am, I have to say, talking a little bit to those that are going to be confirmed this upcoming Saturday, because this is your friend group, these people that I'm speaking about in Scripture. They're of your age. And I believe in the Gospel of John we see another example Maybe some of you know that I've done a considerable amount of work on the beloved disciple who is in John's gospel. It's only in that gospel that we hear of the beloved disciple, and it has um, given theologians a lot to talk about for a couple thousand years. How is it that John, as Matthew, Mark, and Luke, has the list of the disciples? They're all accounted for, but John has this extra one. What's this extra one in there? The beloved disciple. He doesn't show up in Matthew or Mark or Luke. So what is this beloved disciple? Some have written that it's a metaphor for who we are to be. But there are some challenges with that theory. Some have written that it was a woman and that she couldn't be named because of the circumstances of the time. That is a very good consideration. I've thrown into the hat that it's a possibility that he was a young person. In Jesus' time, young men studied with a rabbi right about the time of puberty. They chose a rabbi with whom to study. And it is very probable that Jesus had young people that were with him always, just like the disciples. And as I've done some research, it appears that young people have been treated as young people are always treated. They count sometimes. We know this in our own day and age. You go to buy a ticket to something, and you're like, oh, good, I get the student rate. I'm not really an adult. Or maybe you go to eat at a restaurant, and you beg to eat off the kids' menu, and they permit you perhaps this once. Or maybe you go to a family gathering, and it's debated whether you'll sit at the grown-up table or the kid table just by the number of chairs. It's not like you have an assigned one. 
when you're in the early adolescent years. Furthermore, in John's Gospel, we see someone who knows himself specifically in relationship to Jesus. As his identity forms, he understands who he is, and he actually takes on a new name, a new understanding of himself. It doesn't matter what his real name is anymore. He understands himself as beloved by God. And that is the identity he calls everyone into. The entire gospel pulls at us to come to understand ourselves in a new way. It asks us to reconsider ourselves in relationship to the living God, not as that and this or out there and in here, but as intimately connected. And you see it even in this prayer at the end of John's gospel when Jesus is praying out loud so his disciples can hear and he speaks specifically to God the Father that everyone might know that they are one as he and God are one. This is his prayer and it's reiterated over and over and over again and it's our biggest challenge as people. Christina Cleveland a contemporary, she's probably in her mid to early 30s, early to mid 30s. She is a PhD and according to her website, a social psychologist, a public theologian, author, and activist. She is on staff at Duke University in their research division and she has just created the Center for Justice and Renewal, a nonprofit which is dedicated to helping justice advocates sharpen their understanding of the social realities that maintain injustice while also stimulating the soul's enormous capacity to resist and transform those realities. I got to hear her speak at the Consortium of Endowed Episcopal Parishes this past, um, past February when it was held in Boston. And it's always nice to see who else is an Episcopalian, so I'm glad that we can claim her. In her book, Disunity in Christ, Uncovering the Hidden Forces That Keep Us Apart, she writes this, the primary problem is that our identities are too small. We tend to rely most on our smaller cultural identities and ignore our larger common identity as members of the body of Christ. Indeed, adopting a common identity is the key to tearing down cultural divisions and working toward reconciliation. Is that not what Jesus is praying? in his high priestly prayer to his father, that we might all know that we are one. Richard Rohr, in his reflection for this morning, says that this is really what the original sin is, our belief that we are divided and are living into such divisions. That's where sin creeps in over and over again, multiple times a day, and works itself into the systems of our life together. It reminds me of a South African word that I came to know in seminary, Ubuntu. It first appeared in the mid-1800s, mid and it is often translated as this, I am because we are. We make each other. We know ourselves in relationship with each other. That's the only way we know ourselves. That's why we want to be with some people and not with some others, because people bring out things in us. They help create who we are in that time and place. And there are some people that we say, oh, I like how you make me. And there are others that we say, oh, my goodness, I don't like how you make me. This is the invitation, and this is what we know in the beloved disciples' relationship with Jesus. He comes to know himself differently. 
He likes how Jesus makes him. Jesus makes him a person who is beloved. Jesus gives him the freedom and the capacity to love others, and this transforms his life, and it's the message of good news that he has to share with all of us. And so, my friends who are about to be confirmed in another few days' time, take this to heart, or at least open your heart to receive this. And I encourage the adults to open their hearts to receive it so that it can be imparted. That God desires an intimate relationship with us that transforms who we are. We know ourselves differently. We carry ourselves differently. And we act differently in the world. And in that, everything is transformed. This is what Paul knew, and we read about it in the Acts reading today. They didn't leave their cells. And because of that choice, they got to see the glory of God. Amen.